This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week we have a fine arts-focused show as the Fall Into Art Festival returns to Columbia. We've got a chat with one of the show's organisers, plus two of the artists who will be exhibiting at this weekend's festival, one of whom was a former Missouri Arts Council featured artist who was on the show last August and with whom I had such a lovely time I thought we would revisit that chat. But before all that, we are off to the theatre, so if you have unwrapped your cough sweets, the curtain is about to rise. As a general rule, I avoid community theatre plays in which characters are doing an English accent. It is generally a painful experience, similar to the experience my husband has when I do my American accent. He says it makes his ears bleed. So I have to be totally honest and say that when I heard Columbia Entertainment Company were planning on doing a production of the classic British farce, no sex please, we're British, my initial reaction was, ugh. Not only because of the accent thing, but because whilst, yes, it is a classic piece of British theatre which ran in London's West End for a staggering 16 years from 1971 to 1987, it does feel like something from the Benny Hill era, which, let's face it, is best forgotten. When this show opened in New York in 1973, it did not fare as well as it had in London, only playing for 16 performances, with the New York Times critic commenting that he disliked it most cordially, that its triviality was beyond contempt and its witlessness was at times amusing. But the public in England and around the world seem never to really have been bothered by the play's critics, as it has been performed in over 50 countries and is still going strong 50 years later. But that is all by way of saying I was wrong to plan on avoiding Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the play as not only did I laugh harder than almost anyone else there except maybe my theatre date, Monica Palmer, but also my ears did not bleed even once at the English accents. Everyone was stellar. The comic timing was spot on and the set was magnificent. And so, as Monica said to me afterwards, see... Aren't you regretting now being so judgmental before you even saw it? And I had to confess that, yes, I was shamefaced and regretful. So I am delighted to welcome to the show, just in the time for its final weekend on the CEC stage, the play's director, Terry Schoonover, and one of the lead actors, Ginger Corley. Welcome to the show, Terry and Ginger. Well, thank you. What a, what a wonderful, splendid introduction. <laughs> Well, I have to confess that I was wrong. I mean, I did. You know that I was like, oh, no. But oh, yes. You are amazing. So I thought we would start with a little No Sex, Please, We're British trivia quiz. And I, I don't really expect you to know the answers, so I will accept wild guesses. But it's just kind of a, a fun way to get, get some more information across. So here we go. <clears throat> Question one. The play was written by Anthony Marriott and Alistair Foote, one of whom died at the age of 41 just six weeks before the show opened at London's Strand Theatre in June 1971. Which of the two writers demised before the play had even debuted? Well, I remember seeing this when I was doing my research in the show, and they did think that that may have contributed to it not succeeding in the U.S., so it's a 50-50 shot. So I'm going to say <laughs> Anthony Marriott. Ginger, 
Well, being the dutiful actor that I am, I must agree with my director at all times, right? <laughs> so you've got two bids, right, for uh, Anthony Marriott. Well, then it's two nil to me then, because oh, it, oh no. <laughs> See what I get for following his advice. <laughs> it was Alistair Foote. So, question two, following on from that. Alistair Foote may not have been around to enjoy the play's huge success, but his daughter, Moira Foote, most certainly was. How might American fans of questionable 1970s British comedy know Alistair's daughter, Moira? Oh, boy. Uh, boy, that could have been from, from anything, I. I'm going to give Moira from Peter Pan. <laughs> okay. And, uh, Just kidding. And I'm going to say Moira had a recurring role as a prisoner in Prisoner Cell Block H. There was a clue in the introduction. Moira oh. Foote was in Benny Hill. Oh, no. And she was also in Allo Allo, and she was also in Are You Being Served? Very oh, there good. you go. Okay. Question three. <clears throat> okay. The actor who played the role of Brian Runnicles in the original stage production in London was well known in the UK as a comic actor on British television in a show called Some Mothers Do Avon, which I don't think played over here. But the actor went on to star in and perform 1,300 times in a major musical, which won him an Olivia Award, a Tony, a New York Drama Desk Award. What was the musical that Michael Crawford performed in i was going through my head i was thinking it was michael crawford and i'm going to go with phantom of the opera ginger are you going to agree with him again hmm you know what i am because i am not quite sure man i wish i was prepared for all this historical uh <laughs> questions if we get some play questions i've got it all there <laughs> well then it is two 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 then because you are right it was phantom of the opera and he played the phantom nice. okay last question the play's writer anthony marriott is quoted as having been surprised by the serendipity of the play's success he allegedly said let's face it the thing's a freak how long did the play's own writer think it would run for? <laughs> yeah, probably six months. I was going to say, I mean, is that a short amount of time? I would I think would... he would, if he was thinking it was going to be that bad, I'd say, let's give it a month. <laughs> six weeks, a ginger. You were, you uh, were closest. <laughs> well, there you go. I thought that was just some interesting trivia about the play. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, you know, you always know you're watching a farce when the stage set has five doors plus a staircase mm -hmm. and a hatch window into a kitchen. And, of course, the play features newlyweds, a visiting mother, a boss, a bank inspector, a muddled friend, and, of course, a police officer who always seems to pop up at the most inconvenient time. So, Terry, give us a synopsis of the plot and who our main protagonists are. Certainly. So the, the play is set in an apartment above a bank. This is where our protagonists live. Uh, this is for um, Peter and Francis. And they, they've been there for about three weeks or so. They're just newly married, so they're very much into each other. <laughs> and in the course of the day, a package arrives that... Francis seems to think is, is some wine glasses she ordered. Well, it turns out it's not wine glasses, it's pornographic pictures. And so they show up, and it's, now this is the early 70s. So obscenity laws for Britain during this time were rather rather muddled, and people were very, very at least our two uh, protagonists here, <laughs> were very cautious about who they tell about this, because they think nobody will believe them. So they try to figure some way to get rid of the photos uh, without going through proper channels. And as a result, other things start showing up. Some movies start showing up. 
some books, some young ladies show up. And when you coordinate that in with the appearance of a mother-in-law and a boss and, <laughs> and another bank employee and a, and a police uh, superintendent, hilarity ensues. <laughs> Uh, so and there's a lot of opening and closing of doors. <laughs> a lot of opening and closing of doors. Uh, yeah, it you you get a good sense of that through the first act. In the second act, it really picks up, um, <laughs> and it's just it's, it's almost just virtually nonstop. Ginger, you play Frances, the young wife who thinks she's mail ordering Scandinavian glassware, and despite the scampering farce which you inadvertently started, your role is largely as one of the more kind of straight characters. And so, within the dynamic range of the play, you almost have to underplay as other characters start to ramp up their roles. What did you want to bring to the role of Francis? Well, I mean, I've always been a fan of British comedy. I love the circle effect that uh, British comedy always loops back to that original statement. And so I found with Francis, um, it was nice to support all the chaos that was going around. And I found that she often was the culprit of setting up those jokes. So I had a lot of fun with figuring out how I could play with the lines, but also how I could express more visually with my body or inflection. And so it was a lot of fun to add that element because she is very much a more straight character, which can often be harder because, you know, you want to be silly with everyone else. But um, it's that uh, that calm and that foundational support that actually enhances the comedy of the show. So it was nice to have that dynamic while, you know, our counterpart, Brian Runnicles, played by Andrew, just went absolutely <laughs> crazy on stage. Oh, my goodness, he did. Terry, there was an article about the play in a British newspaper just last year that said political correctness has unfairly consigned this innuendo-packed farce to obscurity. Is there a director brave enough to bring it back? And I guess that would be you. <laughs> so yes, I would was... be you, wouldn't it? <laughs> What was your brave directorial vision for your production of this play? So the way I I looked at the show is that you have to kind of approach it just with no fear, not only in terms of the blocking and what you want to establish, but also to keep true with where it's set in, in its time. You know, it's important to take a show like this that's set in specifically in, in the early seventies and for it to sort of act as a social microscope on how things were now obviously things are elevated for comedic effect but just because you have all these elements in there it's not necessarily now verboten that you can't do that show anymore but you do sort of have to bring it to times and sort of how you approach it for example in this show there are actors who are up here in states of undress there's husband and wife canoodling with each other and and on a couch, and so you have to approach that a little differently than you might have done, say, five, ten, even fifteen years ago. We brought in somebody to handle intimacy coordination, to make sure that actors were trusting of each other and were respectful of each other, and that seems to have worked for me. It seems to have bring the cast together. So that is sort of what I focus on. But I, I don't really want to shy away from material that might be considered controversial or might be considered a little bit of a, on the risque side, just because there is that, that's, I don't think is a reason to do it. You can approach it in a modern way, but also still keep true to the, to the intent of the piece, I think. Right. 
Well, let's get on to the thorny issue of English accents. Yes. Ginger, you already have won a huge fan in Monica Palmer, who is delighted that she gets to act alongside you for CEC's upcoming production of Steel Magnolias. And she told me that not only do you have a perfect radio voice, but you are also comfortable with a number of accents. So tell us what accents you are comfortable using on the stage. I will try just about anything. Um, There's some, obviously, that I know better, but it's all about um, just listening and practice is really important. I am from Louisiana, so the upcoming show with Monica for Steel Magnolias is going to be a blast because I get to go back to my roots. But I've lived all over the U.S. Um, My ex-husband was actually English, so being around his family as well helped. But I will say in my defense, my English accent and my Cockney and my Northern and my Southern, like all the range in between, um, was pretty spot on before I met him. So I just want to throw that out there. (laughs) But um, I love it. Um, There's many that I've done. I've done a French accent. um, I've done an Italian accent. Just a range of different English, Irish accents. Scottish is a little hard for me. Mm. Australian's a little hard for me. But with anything, it's practice. And I'm also, you know, I'm a huge theater nerd. It's that effort of just trying to make people laugh that I've been trying to do my whole life. And so being silly is a part of that and doing funny voices is most certainly a part of it as well. (laughs) Terry, I believe you worked with an online vocal coach to help everyone prep their accents. And I'm curious about that process and and some of the vocal exercises the dialect coach had the actors work on. Yes. When you mentioned, because we saw each other about three months ago, I had just finished with Ernest, and you knew that this show was coming up, and you just were like, oh, no, please. You, you can't have American actors doing a British accent. You just can't. Isn't his accent awesome? <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Yes. Well, and I knew that going in, so we made sure to resource out some dialect coaching. We had some online tutoring available. Uh, we had two sessions with them, and then also – resources were available on YouTube and and other avenues to explore as well. And I think it's important that actors, whenever they hear that there's an accent requirement or or something like that that they're not comfortable with, they don't need to shy away from it, especially if you've got the mechanisms in place by which to coach. I mean, you wouldn't expect to do a musical without having a musical coordinator or or a dance show without a choreographer. It's the same thing when you're doing a show with accents. It adds to the value of the show, as we can see here, because you've been very pleased with how it came out. And I've heard nothing but positive feedback from everybody who's seen it, who has just had thought how the accents were really well done. And I agree. I, I thought they were doing wonderfully. Yeah, I mean, I think that you don't, for a mid-American audience, you don't have to have a perfect English accent because not everyone in the audience is me. You've just got to ping their ear enough that they think, oh, that sounds kind of English and that's enough. That's right. all you have to do. Terry, a key component of any farce are the stage mechanics, the opening and closing of doors, the scampering across the stage. And as a director, you need to come up with blocking in which people can move quickly around the furniture and the set. So working with the set designer is critical. And in that respect, you were able to work with a veteran of stage design, Chris Bowling, who is also in the play. What were some of the decisions that you and Chris made about the set? Because it is a magnificent set. Thank you. Chris did a marvelous job on on his construction and our overall design. We didn't try to redo the the wheel with this set. We we saw what was in the script and said, okay, if it was good enough for the script, it's good enough for us. And basically it was just a matter of getting, once the doors were up and we knew that we could slam them without having to <laughs> knock down the whole set, 
I, I was drilling into to the actors' heads. Okay, you just the timing just has to be there. As soon as a door slams, another one opens. It just has to be constant because the pacing in a show like this is so vital and so important. And you, you just simply cannot allow yourself to to let let lighten up at any point on that block. You just got to stay on it. And uh, and they really did. They. They, they were on it all the time. So They did. No Sex, Please, We're British is in its final weekend at Columbia Entertainment Company. And so you only have three more opportunities to see it. Friday and Saturday night at 7.30 or the Sunday matinee at 2pm. There is adult humour, sexual innuendo, suggestive scenes and adult language. So it may not be appropriate for everyone in your family. But if you are looking for some 1970s British comedy, CEC has you covered. And it definitely has my recommendation. Terry Schoonover and Ginger Corley break many legs in this final weekend and thank you so much for making time to chat and for proving me wrong. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Appreciate your time. I love buying art, not just art that hangs on the wall or sits on a side table being decorative and engaging, but art that I get to interact with in a more everyday way, beautifully glazed bowls that I can eat out of, one-of-a-kind works of jewellery and hand-woven scarves that I can wear, the hand-built mug I drink my tea out of every day. They are all part of our art collection and they each have a story where I bought it, who made it, my relationship with the maker. My collection reminds me where I have been and the stories my husband and I have made together over the past 17 years. I cannot imagine buying a piece of art from someone I had not interacted with at some time because all of these items remind me of the maker and I want to be surrounded by people I like. I remember once hankering after a work by a particular artist and I was so excited to see she was going to be at the Plaza Art Fair in Kansas City. But on two occasions when I visited her booth, she ignored me. She didn't smile and say, let me know if you have any questions or I'll be with you in a moment. So in the end, I didn't buy the work I had coveted. I decided if she didn't have time for me, then I didn't want a piece of her work to remind me of her indifference. And the great thing about art fairs is that you really get a chance to meet and chat with a works maker. And that is why across the country, the art festival circuit is so popular with makers and buyers. We get to meet each other. This weekend, Fall Into Art returns to Columbia after a two-year hiatus. The last show was in 2019, with the pandemic putting the kibosh on the show in 2020 and 2021. Fall Into Art has always been an indoor show, and for its first decade, the fair was held at Parquet Plaza. But this year, it is back in a new and smaller location at the Knights of Columbus building on North Stadium Boulevard. And one of the artists who has long displayed her work at Fall into art and has also been on the organizing committee is Melinda Lotham, who I am delighted to welcome back to the show for the first time since November 2019. Hello, Melinda. Hello, Diana. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm happy to have you back here. So after two years away, Fall into Art is back. How are you feeling? Exhausted, elated, overwhelmed, excited, wondering, why did I say yes to this? <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> Probably all the above, but I'm. I, we have a really good team, so I'm feeling really good about it. So this year, the fair will be in a different and, and considerably smaller venue that has maybe slightly less curb appeal than the Central Hall of Parkade Plaza. Tell me about the move and why this venue. Well, Farrah Neewenhausen, you know, has been a part of this from the get-go, 
and she found this venue. She approached me. Actually, at Lisa Bartlett's art show that she had out at Boone Heritage, and I think I even waved at you out there. <laughs> That's when Farah actually approached me with all of this, and uh, I had to think on it because it was a very stressful time for me. And I had kind of thought about it, and all I could see was win, win, win. A win for the artists, a win for the community, and a win for my husband's non-for-profit. So, and a win for me because it's right up the street from me. <laughs> Did Parkade not want you back, or was it just too expensive? What happened? Well, Parkade sold, and they wanted to quit doing events. So that was really the bottom line on all of that. They didn't want to do events anymore, and uh, they have a new owner. Ah, oh. and I guess finding a venue that is big enough to take 40-plus artists, is there's not that many places, I guess, that you could go. Did you think about anywhere else, or was this kind of the one venue? Well, I think Farrah would be the one answering that one, but I think, you know, cost has a lot to do with it. But it just, it, you know, quite frankly, it's right right now. For, for the moment, it's, it's right. We'll see how it works out this weekend, but I think we got it laid out really nicely. So after two years of no shows, even for an event as large and longstanding as Art in the Park, it's, it's difficult because they didn't have a show for two years. It's difficult cranking up the festival machinery again as, you know, some artists have retired from the circuit. Others are still not ready to come back. Some visitors are still anxious about indoor spaces. What would you say have been the principal challenges fall into Art has had to deal with after this two years hiatus? Oh... The challenge has just been pulling it all together. But, you know, the artists, they were ready to go once they heard we were doing it. No problem getting artists, for sure. It's just a matter of getting the team together, getting a good team together, advertising and, uh, well, everything. You know, you know how what it's like <laughs> to put a show on. I, you know what it's like to put a show on. <laughs> I do. And you, know, you get out of practice on you haven't done it for a couple of years. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So looking back at my notes, I think you had 57 artists in 2019 that you chose from an application pool of around 80. This year, you have 36 artists listed with about half coming from Columbia or hereabouts and the others coming in from St. Louis and around the state. How much is that smaller number of artists due just to the fact that you've got a smaller venue versus fewer applicants? Yes, it, it had to do. We had to figure out how many booths we could get in there. And so, yes, that is why uh, we had we had a limit. Uh, I think we had a limit of 38. And I, I haven't checked the list. I thought we had 37, 38 artists, but you, your, your list may be more accurate than mine. I've, I've been a little busy, so. <laughs> I just counted the numbers on the website. I mean, did you have the same number of applicants and had to jury harder? Because I think across the country, a lot of festivals have seen lower applications this year for the reasons that I, I listed. Some people aren't ready to come back. Yeah, absolutely, Diana, absolutely. But we, we did fill and we did have a waiting list. I don't know how many applicants we had. I'm going to guess maybe 40, 45, and then somebody will say, no, we had this. So I, I really don't know because I, I just, that's not my end of things on that. 
Well, one of the things that you have been really successful at is raising money for a local nonprofit. You hold a silent auction of works donated by the exhibiting artists and also you collect donations from visitors. And I think between, was it 2016 and 2019, you raised over $11,000 for the food bank for Central and Northeast Missouri. But this year, you are raising money for a different organization. So tell us about this year's nonprofit partner and why you chose them. Well, it's Compass Music. And it was a part of my decision to even participate. My husband's been on, was asked to be on the board about a year and a half ago. And they are a music school that caters to children and adults. And they have been around since 2007. And so the money that we raise from the silent auction, which is wonderful art that is donated from the artists, that money will be going to Compass Music. So that's our non-for-profit this year. And Tony has been such a helpful person in all of this, getting our list of musicians and helping getting our volunteers. I don't think I could. I, I know I couldn't have done it without him. So it takes a village to put an art festival and yes, willing husbands are very helpful in that regard. Yes, yes. <laughs> so as well as being on the organizing committee, you are also one of the exhibiting artists showing your painted gourds, which I think you estimate to have sold more than 4,000. And on your Etsy page, I looked, I think you have over 150 different designs, many of which you'll have at full into art. So tell me a little bit about your own artistic process. What is your production? process like year round because you are making a lot of art you know diana i'm making a lot of art but i have to tell you i'm really looking forward to the show so i can this art can go and find a home because my house is getting real filled up because <laughs> i haven't had art shows in the last couple of years so i'm really looking forward to that my process is my gourds, they're so inspiring. You look at them and, and you get so many ideas even before you paint them. The last couple of weeks, I've just, I got a whole new crop of gourds and I've just been playing. It's just been a lot of playing, but they are what inspire me. I, I mean, I have my usual nativities and Santas and, and things that people think of with gourds. But when it comes to the characters that come out, like I did dancers, I've got these two gourds and they're my dancers. And they're the ones that inspire me, the gourds themselves. I've got an awesome witch <laughs> that I've got coming. and Perfect for this weekend. Yes. So really the gourds are what inspire me and, um, and I play. I just play with them. But yeah, I'm ready for them to find some homes. <laughs> so can you buy them year round or is it like you have to buy everything in the fall or, or are gourds available? Where do you get them from? I get them year round. I grew some this year. I, I always have them growing, but whether they're good or not is another question. But I I get them. Uh, I have been getting them online from gourd vendors. And a couple months ago, I had a lady contact me from Jeff City, who said, "Look, I'm getting out of the gourds. Would you like to buy them?" And so I got in the car, went to them, and loaded up my van with her gourds. And those have been my new inspirations. Have been that. So, yeah, I I can get them online. I I had a farmer in in Blackwater. I used to go out to and buy my gourds from, and he passed away last month. But um, 
I get gourds from all over the place after over 30 years of this. And you certainly do a lot of beautiful holiday season decorated gourds, little Santas and things like that. Is there a point in the year where you think, I cannot paint another Santa Claus? Well, actually, there came a point in, in my year when I, it was like, I can't paint another tiger ornament, Diana. <laughs> I remember how much of a bestseller those were. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I I paint what I feel. I paint what I want. So if I don't want to paint something, then I don't paint it. Well, back to the festival quickly before we close. Having not had a festival for the past two years and, and lots of time, therefore, to reflect on the festival, what have you missed the most about it? And what would you say is your favorite part of the weekend? I like to buy as much stuff as anybody else. So I, <laughs> I love to shop art, too. And I, I think one of my favorite sayings that you used to say way back when was, and you probably still do, is buy more art. <laughs> and so I like, I, I love to go and, and buy art. And everything you described at the beginning was exactly how I feel. I love to see, I love to meet the people that create it. They're doing their passion. I mm. love I love getting something of people doing their passion. I mean, I'm doing my passion. You're doing your passion. I mean, I love to be around people doing their passion. So that's one of my favorites. Perfect. Well, Fall Into Art will be at the Knights of Columbus Event Center on North Stadium Boulevard this Saturday, the 29th and Sunday, the 30th of October. The fair is open from 10 a.m. till 5 p.m. both days and is free to attend. You can see which artists will be exhibiting online at fallintoart.org forward slash artists. And if you are on Facebook or Instagram, you can also find information about the artists and the musical lineup. Melinda, I know this is a crazy busy week for you so thank you so much for making time to chat oh thank you so much diana thank you thank you i feel like i should start this next chat with a little clip of music from the 1971 version of willy wonka and the chocolate factory come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination take a look and you'll see into your imagination. Because it is the favourite quote and personal philosophy of surreal and fantasy painter Molly Chouinard, who is my next guest. The St. Louis-based painter's works are riots of colour and humour and whimsy, suffused with details that make you do a double take and which have cleverly punny titles like Mary Poppins and Santa's Claus and maybe my favourite, Biblia a painting of a modified stegosaurus with a tummy full of books and little figures climbing his staircase back to hunt out titles on the high shelves of a giant library. I'm going to give you her website address up front so you can look through her works as we chat. So go to mollychounard.com and that's spelled M-O-L-L-I-E-C-H-O-U-N-A-R-D.com. Good morning, Molly. Good morning. That intro was amazing. Like, I love how you described everything like that. I need you for my writing. <laughs> well, you, your artworks would suggest that you are a perpetually sunny person. Is that the case? Actually, I'm sometimes the opposite. I'm quite a pessimist. And so I, I feel like it's important to put really positive things in the world. Uh, it kind of cheers me up. But also, you know, I feel like that's better for everyone, really. 
Why make a bunch of negative stuff? Right. I mean, do you, when you sit down to a canvas and you feel down, are you able to paint or you can't paint or does the act of painting lift you up? Oh, no. I, I usually paint pretty happy. Yeah. Now I can't really paint when I'm down. So they usually cheer me up before I even start. I mean, that's part of the process. I mean, it, it cheers me and hopefully everyone who sees them. You have so many paintings on your website. Are you a fast painter or does what I'm looking at represent many years of work? A little bit of both. Um, I would say that I am a fast painter, but a lot of times actually what takes more time than the painting is just the planning of the paintings and the conceptualizing of them. So I might have an, an idea or a story in mind, and then it's how do I put it on canvas in a way that isn't too straightforward and something that gives the viewer a chance to really delve in and, and experience it in a different way. And that's a bit tricky. Where do your paintings start? Like with the character in the paintings or the background or? They start with an idea. So there's usually something I want to say or an idea that I want to to get across. Sometimes it comes with an image, but usually it's a, it's usually it starts with words. Is that weird? No. <laughs> I do a lot of word <laughs> brainstorming and association. Tell me a little bit about your background as a painter and where this love of surrealism started. I guess I you could say I'm classically trained. I have a a bachelor's degree in graphic design and illustration and a minor in painting. But, you know, I spent many years not doing anything professionally. I was just, you know, a hobby painter. When I got out of college, I just wasn't really, I knew graphic design wasn't for me by the time I, by the time I got my degree. So I've just been working out, trying to live my life. And, and so I had an opportunity, I don't know, about six or seven years ago now to really change that. And so I jumped in with both feet. And so I've been doing painting since then. And the surrealism actually started from my husband. He and I would were working on a project together. He's a, a computer programmer. So he was making an indie video game. And he asked me to come up with some characters for his game. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I can do that. That sounds like fun. Um, working with your your spouse, not always a great idea uh, because <laughs> the project didn't end up happening. So it got scrapped. And so, you know, I had all these ideas and these characters, you know, when you're creating a video game, it's all about storylines and plot. And in my head, I have designed these characters and they had feelings and they had character and they, they actually existed in my brain. Like this is a fully fledged person. So I created a series of characters on, you know, painting them to give them a more full life than just a two-dimensional drawing or, you know, one that we would have animated for a video game. And that's where it started, I guess. And were these characters all animals? Actually, at the time, there was a Cyclops. One of my favorite paintings that I've ever done is <laughs> it's got him and his family. And then there was a, a bunny who pulled a magician out of his hat and an ostrich lady. They're all circus characters. I've seen those on your website, I think, all, all three of those. Yeah. So what was the opportunity that came along that allowed you to become a painter? So I was laid off from a job, actually. And uh, they gave me a really nice severance because it just wasn't working out. I think they'd hired me to fill a position for someone they thought was retiring. She had no intention. So five years later, they realized that the position wasn't necessary. 
And um, so they offered me a really nice severance. And my husband's like, well, if you ever really want to go for it, let's do it. And so I did. And I, I worked uh, part time at a painting with a twist, teaching people how to paint or instructing them. I guess it's not quite painting. And then um, that allowed me to really work on the side. And then art fairs really opened up another avenue for me, being able to travel and show my work and discuss it. And you can really make more of a connection with your buyers when you can discuss the the work. And uh, so it's worked out pretty well for me. I used to run an art fair here in Colombia, so I understand the process. I mean, and it's not something that you just one day think you're going to do and then do it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. You need to have a tent and you need to have stock for shelving, for walls to put in the tent and ways of displaying your work. And you need to work out how to apply for festivals. So tell me about that first, those first festivals. Were you accepted straight away? Because I can see that your work has a huge appeal to people. And I know that if it had come across as one of the entries in our art festival, I would have been totally on it. (laughs) Well, thank you. where, Where did it start? The festival world start for you? Actually, uh, as odd as it sounds, I uh, I met a, another coworker at Painting with a Twist, and she said, "Hey, I did this this art fair, and I think it would be fun for you to try it." And I was like, "No, no, no!" And she's like, "You don't have to have a huge setup. You don't have to, you know, you just have to set your work out and and you know, just be there, just show up." And I'm like, "Well," so uh, in in true Molly fashion, I tend to over plan for things. <laughs> So I didn't, I didn't uh, take small measures. I, I got on the internet, I did a lot of research. And I found a set of panels on Craigslist, I lucked out. Uh, So I ended up with a full set of panels and a fully fledged tent and I was ready to go. And I've had the same panels and the same tent since well, actually, I had to replace the tent after a tornado. And then every event that I did, I just talked to people. And it was a it was a chance for me to really meet other artists and see what they were doing. And I'd pick their brains and talk to them about like, Hey, so what are you doing? What, what events do you like? Is this one good for you? And I met a ton of people that way. Do you sell well at every festival or are some towns better than others? Do you go to some towns where people just love whimsy and other towns where people turn their nose up at it? You know, my very first couple of events, I had more of, I had like some of the beginning works that are a little bit more, I don't want to say dark because in my mind, they're very light, but they are more shocking, like the Cyclops I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I would get some strange looks. However, I feel like I've always had a good reception. Now, that said, it doesn't mean I sell. I have definitely found that urban areas tend to sell better for my work than rural areas. They can't just like it. They have to like it enough to hang it. And I realize, as funny as this sounds, that my work isn't a living room work. So like a lot of artists, they sell work that hangs above your fireplace and that they want all their (laughs) visitors to see. My work isn't living room work. My art is, it's it's what they're going to put in their office. It's what they're going to put in their man cave or in their private areas of the house. The places that they spend the most time that they want to look at it, but not necessarily. I mean, certainly I do have people and it's all over my living room, obviously. I would put it in my living room, I can tell you. (laughs) You know, and so it's. It's just one of those things where I just kind of figure out all along the way, like, like who my, my buyers are, but I've done really well at some smaller events. And then I've done shows where I've walked out with a, with a zero in my pocket, you know, I didn't make any money. 
And, you know, it just happens. It's part of this job. But at the end of the day, it's it's wonderful. I read about uh, your Kickstarter campaign to help save the U.S. Postal Service. And you raised a total of $2,188. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, it's easy to sit back and just be like, well, uh, this kind of sucks. <laughs> And, you know, like I said, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist, but I didn't want to wallow on that. I really knew I needed to, I had to get out there and I had to work because this is my career. This is my full-time gig, you know, in doing so, you know, I'm reading the news and I'm like, oh my God, this is just horrible. Like what was happening with the post office, you know, and I feel like they had been a little bit under attack for years, honestly, but I saw an opportunity to, to dip my feet in the Kickstarter pool and I thought, you know what, why not combine the two and to do something that's worthwhile? So it gave me the opportunity to try that platform and a voice to express some of the things like that were really bothering me about how we're treating the U.S. Postal Service and and letting other people say, hey, yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to back you and I want you to send these postcards to the to the president, or in this case, we also sent them to different representatives around the country. And it really made me feel like people were supporting the whole idea. And it was about getting the the word out. And it was surprising to me how many people weren't even aware. I thought, well, yeah, my mail is slow. They're horrible. Let's just get rid of them. But really, it's a much, much bigger problem than your mail is a little bit slow. I mean, your mail is slow for a reason. So you designed postcards that people could basically buy. So they're your, they're your surreal fantasy designs. And then they could mail them to their senators and congressmen and to the president and say, hey, save the postal service. I think it's such an awesome idea. Did you get a lot of feedback from any government people about it? You know, I didn't. I also had a tier where if they just wanted to donate a dollar, then I would send off a set of, well, I also created a, a painting for it. So there's specifically a Save the Post Office painting. Those are the ones that I would, I personally sent off. And, you know, I sent them out, I don't know, I sent out hundreds <laughs> myself. I, I haven't received any word back, but unfortunately, the realism of it is that it's going to end up in a mail room somewhere and more than likely never actually get to the person that you're sending it to. But at least you did something. You made an effort. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I figured if, if I send a multitude of them, they can't stop them all. <laughs> Maybe a few of them will get through. And then my voice will be heard at least at some point. So on your website, all your works are prints. How do people buy originals? Usually they, they buy them through the art fairs. I'll bring a set of originals there or I also have offerings like social media wise, or somebody can contact me about purchasing an original. Well, I love them. The fantasy surrealist art of Molly Chouinard can be found on her website at mollychouinard.com. And that's M-O-L-L-I-E-C-H-O-U-N-A-R-D.com. Well, Molly, thank you for putting so much joy out into the world and for taking time to chat. Of course. Well, thank you for having me. For Columbia artist Jamie Shepherds, the colour pink symbolises rebellion. The rebellion she felt as a child because it was the colour girls were supposed to like and wear. 
She refused. But flash forward a few decades and to celebrate her one-year business anniversary and a significant birthday, she painted her home office in a hard-to-ignore colour called exuberant pink. I think I might have had a similar relationship with pink. I definitely eschewed it until well into my 20s. It is a colour which over the years Jamie has definitely made peace with, as not only is she surrounded by it, but it crops up a lot in her art, both in her encaustic wall-hanging works and her jewellery. Like many artists, Jamie started encouraging her artistic voice when she was mid-career and looking for a way to find balance in her life. She says she had always nurtured a creative streak, focusing that energy on dance and voice lessons growing up so that she could get the juicy roles in school and community musical theatre productions. But it wasn't until 2016 when she took an encaustic workshop with local artist Elise Rugolo that her art making was kindled and it was love at first butane flame. And having awoken her inner artist, the next step was making jewellery and then applying to art shows and community exhibiting opportunities. And in January 2021, forming her own company, Jamie Shepherd's Art LLC. Jamie, what a delight to have you on this week's Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that was a wonderful introduction. Um, you've done some research on me. <laughs> I dive deep. <laughs> I appreciate that. So you've made peace with pink and have now reclaimed it to use in the most unexpected and possibly obnoxious ways that you can. What's your pinnacle of pink payback to date, would you say? Uh, well, I, I think it would have to be that home office that you've already <laughs> mentioned because it is, it's out there. I mean... The room almost glows a pink and it's just, you can't miss it in the room. Do you still love it? I do still love it. No regrets. No regrets. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have a whole series of encaustic work called On Point, inspired by the shades of pink to peach ribbons that you used to have to sew onto your own On Point ballet shoes. What made you think of that for an art series? You know, I, I have been throughout my time making art, finding it as a great way to reconnect with the the lighter, the happier days of my childhood. Not that my life as an adult hasn't been happy, but as a child, you just worry about so much less and you see the world through such different eyes. And it has been really nice to reconnect with different elements of that and remember the things that I used to do that brought me so much joy. And ballet shoes were one of those things. Was it the ribbons? Was it the ribbons themselves or the ballet or the whole environment of ballet? I think it was the whole thing. And it was kind of a love-hate relationship, to be honest. I had a, I had a teacher who really pushed me hard and... I didn't always appreciate that. Um, her name was Lisa Wolfsberger, and she was intense, and she didn't let us get away with anything, and she would push us hard. And I, I've grown to really appreciate that as an adult. I hope you're sending her one of the artworks. <laughs> you know, that is a great idea. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't spoken with her in quite some time. I'm, I'm hoping she's 
I believe she's still in St. Louis, but I'll need to see if I can reach out to her. I think that one of the things that many of us struggle with as we grow up is that idea of the pursuit of perfection. You know, if I can't do it right first time, then I, I just don't want to do it. And it's so hard as an adult to embrace the journey and to know that you're not going to be perfect when you start out. So talk to me about how encaustic wax helped you let go of that pursuit of perfection. Well, I think learning it as an adult for the very first time and coming to it with no prior experience or even knowledge of it made that easier. I didn't have a prior experience to live up to. I didn't have a favorite artist that I was trying to mimic. I just happened to stumble upon some encaustic art one day at the Orr Street Gallery in Columbia, and I didn't even know what I was looking at. My friend said, oh, that's encaustic. It's wax. And I think there's a workshop here next month. We should take it. And I was just like, okay, whatever. Sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I really had no idea what I was getting into. But I think coming with that just completely open child's mind um, really relieved the pressure. I thought I was the only non-artist in that group. There were other professional artists taking that workshop that day, and I didn't really put any pressure on myself because I'm like, well, I'm not an artist, so I can just have fun. And it turns out I made some really great work, and the instructor, you know, she complimented me on following her prompts closely, and it was just a very positive experience that reawoke that creative and childlike exploration side of my brain that had maybe been neglected. So before that class with Elise Rugolo back in 2016, how were you scratching the creative itch or was it something you just had abandoned? Prior to that, I think I was probably scratching it through my cooking. I have gone to culinary school. It was a diploma program that took about six months. And I've kind of gone through a couple different careers or you know, dreams that I wanted to follow and explore. And they haven't all worked out. But I still have recognized that common thread through all of them of creativity and pushing boundaries, learning the techniques so that I can then break the rules. And it's, um, it's kept me entertained. Are you generally a rule breaker? Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm probably the opposite of what people think of when they think of a rule breaker, but I'm working on it. I'm trying to relax in certain areas where it's maybe not as critical to follow the rules, but it is, that's a struggle for me. Well, tell me about another series of work you have called Piece of Happiness, in which each work comprises two four by four inch panels that sit one on top of each other and they're finished with gold leaf. And you write that these works make you smile so much. Tell me about this series. They do. I have, in the last couple of years of making art, started to use rainbow motifs in my art and not necessarily like a strict rainbow as you would see it in nature, but it's almost like I just can't pick a color. And so I use all of them and I'm really enjoying playing with the gradients and the transitions of the colors. That brings me joy to see how they can just change from one to the other to the next. And so that piece comprised of 16 four by fours, I've decided to break it up and sell it in eight pairs. 
but from left to right, it encompasses a wide swath of the color spectrum. And then the gold is just, I don't know if it's unexpected, but it's a happy touch to me because it catches the light. It kind of very loosely grabs onto the wax where it feels like it. So it's kind of patchy, which is reminiscent of how things can occur in nature. Mm. And then on the opposite side of each pair of paintings from the gold leaf is a really bumpy texture that I've created with the wax. And so it's, it's just a calming piece because it's almost has layers of different techniques in there. The texture goes across every piece, the gold leaf goes across every piece, but then the color shifts and it just brings me joy, especially to see them all lined up next to each other. Is it hard to let go of works or are you at heart a business person and you're like, okay, well, I'm making these to sell. This is a business. So you've got to let them go. Or are there some works that really tug at your heartstrings? Usually it's easy to let them go, but there is one in particular that I have listed as not for sale, at least so far. And it is the first piece of the graffiti series that I did last year. That particular piece was made on a day during a time in my life where I was struggling with a couple things in my career. And I was on deadline for a show at Dogmaster, and I was just feeling some pressure. And I just started to take one of them. It's called a pigment stick, and it's essentially oil paint and wax. And it's very much like a lipstick consistency. And this one happened to be a medium cadmium red. And I just took it and almost in anger, just started smearing it across the whole piece as if it was a dirty mirror in a bar's bathroom late on a night where I was out drinking with friends. And that release of anger um, produced something very beautiful to me. And I stepped back And I just fell in love with that piece. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to make more of these. (laughs) And so then I made a whole series of them. And every piece, except for that very first one, was made on top of a prior encaustic piece that I had fallen out of love with. Mm. And that's important because each piece also features where I have carved into the painting. And so there are places where you can see the the layers below, but then like the almost angry swipes of the pigment stick. And it just created something very beautiful. And that first piece in that series where I had that breakthrough has hung in my living room. And I'm just not ready to part with that one yet. Mm, Yes, it's a pivotal point of your journey. So maybe it's the one that you keep. And so from encaustic, then you moved into jewelry out of a need to come up with a Christmas gift idea for your friends. And I think it's interesting how often an artist will find a new medium because they want to explore gift ideas. So tell me quickly about the evolution of your jewelry collection. Absolutely. So um, prior to making jewelry, I had made some watercolor doodles that I had just made sitting at my coffee table late at night after work watching TV not thinking I was going to do anything with them. It was the equivalent of a kid with a coloring book. (laughs) And I didn't even put two and two together right away. But some of my friends, we do a handmade Christmas gift exchange every year. And I had seen on Etsy the same glass cabochons that I use and the settings. And people were selling photographs in the jewelry. 
And I realized, oh, I can find these settings and make my own jewelry. These would be great gifts for people. And so the very first ones I made were actually made from the art portion of a wall calendar that a friend had gifted me. And it had some gold foil in the design and it caught the light. And then I liked the way the glass, the domed glass would distort the image and make this little snippet look like just a bright abstract piece of eye-catching jewelry. And I gave them to my friends and one of them said, oh, this would be really cool if it was your own art. Mm -hmm. And at first I was actually a little offended, but I (laughs) I tried not to let her know. Um, And and I was like, oh yeah, you're right, it would be. And so, but I thought about it and that idea stuck in my head. And so the very next pieces I made were from those doodles that I had just forgotten about. And I was like, I I think I'm onto something here. And so that's, the whole thing was born from that experience. Fantastic. So you can see Jamie Shepherd's encaustic and jewelry works at this weekend's Fall Into Art. And you can also view her work online at jlshepherdsart.com. And that's spelt J-L-S-C-H-E-P-P-E-R-S-Art.com. jlshepherdsart.com. Jamie, thank you so much for taking time to chat about your work today. And I hope it is a busy weekend for you at Fall Into Art. Thank you. That was so much fun. it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, theatre director Terry Schoonover and actor Ginger Corley from Columbia Entertainment Company, Fall Into Art organiser Melinda Lotvin, painter Molly Chouinard, and encaustic artist and jeweller Jamie Shepherds. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.